You are listening to American Friends of Israel podcast, a rare opportunity to explore the views of world leaders connected to Israel who come from a variety of fields and explore their thought patterns and perspectives on what lies ahead. And now, welcome your host, Iran Broshi, Chairman of the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. Well, good evening to all of you who are joining us this evening. My name is Aran Broshi. I'm the chairman of the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. We're so pleased you could all join us today for the continuation of our series of virtual events with world thought leaders hosted by the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. We're proud to sponsor these types of discussions on issues related to Israel and the world tonight in partnership with the Canadian Anti-Semitism Education Foundation and are pleased to welcome our audience from across Canada, the US, and a few late owl late owls in uh, Europe and Israel. The Open University is, of course, a nonpartisan educational institution, and with over 49,000 students, indeed the largest of Israel's nine accredited universities. We believe sponsoring these types of discussions is very much in the spirit of open dialogue and hearing a range of viewpoints from world leaders on issues related to Israel and the world. And I know we and our audience will very much benefit from the honorary Erwin Kotler's broad perspectives. We're fortunate to uh, welcome a friend of the Open University, Michael Halbert, here to introduce Professor Kotler. Michael is a Toronto-based investor and philanthropist who, along with his family, has been an active leader for many years in the Jewish community, both across Canada and in Israel. He's also a longtime family friend of the honorary Erwin Kotler, and it's my pleasure to hand the microphone over to Michael to introduce our distinguished guest. Thanks, Aran. Most of you have already reviewed Erwin Kotler's CV in our invitation, and if not, you really should. If only to serve as inspiration for what an individual can accomplish in this world, if one sets one's mind and dedicates oneself to what's important for humanity. How many people can claim they aided, among many others, Nelson Mandela and Natan Sharansky, themselves two of the 20th century's symbolic human rights giants? For Erwin Kotler, those were early career achievements, not capstones. He served as both Attorney General and Justice Minister in the Canadian Parliament, second tier only to the Prime Minister himself, a job I'm certain he didn't want, but could have had. Having been first elected to Parliament with an astounding 92% of his riding districts vote. These are returns more common to the illegitimate regimes he's challenged than to ours but that's just one more of Erwin Kotler's touchstones. Long departed from national politics, Erwin is now Canada's special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. If like most of us, you've not lately encountered an international human rights champion who's also a proud Zionist Jew, breathe deep, focus and relax. This is finally, finally, your lucky evening. Lawyer, professor, human rights champion, politician, international emissary, uncorrupted, inspired, refreshingly down to earth and honest, the Honorable Erwin Kotler. Wow, thank you, Michael. What a, what a wonderful introduction. Professor Kotler, Erwin, if I, if I might. With um, pleasure. Thank you. It's, it's really a great honor and a great pleasure to have you here with us tonight. Um, given the unique perspectives that you bring, I would actually like to cover a very broad range of topics and, and I'll tee up a number of questions over the next 30 to 40 minutes or so. And we will then welcome uh, questions from you, our audience, and hopefully we'll get to as many as we can. 
I would urge you to please use the Zoom chat function. Uh, send us your questions, send it throughout the discussion. Don't wait till the end. And um, uh, without further ado, um, just uh, one more thing. We are recording the session. So for those that are coming in late or uh, have to leave uh, early, um, hopefully not, uh, we will uh, make it available uh, in, in the coming days. But let's jump right into it. Um, let, let's start with, uh, with your journey. Um, I understand you've had two primary passions, the Jewish community and international human rights. Um, and let's start with, uh, with international human rights. As, Mike, as Michael touched on, you've had a really remarkable journey in this pursuit of justice over many, many decades. What started you on this journey? What has kept you going for so many decades? Well, one has to go back, I think, to the uh, early teachings of my parents of uh, blessed memory. It was my father who taught me before I could even understand the profundity of what he was saying uh, when he would uh, speak to me about the importance of, as you put it, the pursuit of justice. And he would use the Hebrew term, he would say, of tzedek, 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 and he said that the pursuit of justice, as he put it, is equal to all the other commandments combined. This, as he put it, must be that which you teach onto your children. This must be your life's credo. And it was my mother uh, who, when she would hear my father saying this, would say to me that if you want to pursue justice, you have to understand, you have to feel the injustice about you. You have to go in and about your community and beyond and feel the injustice and combat the injustice. Otherwise, as she put it, the pursuit of justice will be a, a theoretical abstraction. So these early teachings reaffirmed over time, uh, also anchored in uh, Jewish day school teachers, some of whom were Holocaust survivors, and then a very close uh, friendship. First, my mentor, my colleague, my friend, uh, Professor Eli uh, Wiesel, uh, that goes back over uh, 55 years. And I suspect that all these influences resulted in me. And I just want to, at this point for a moment, just thank Michael for that very humbling introduction. All I can say is I've been the beneficiary of a wonderful friendship uh, with Michael and uh, the Halbert uh, family. And it was that uh, involvement of parents' teachings and otherwise that got me involved in what you mentioned in the two great human rights struggles of the second half of the 20th century, the struggle for Soviet Jewry and the struggle against apartheid. And with the two people who became the face, the vision, the inspiration for each of these struggles respectively, Natan Sharansky in the former Soviet Union and Nelson Mandela in South Africa. So that's a snapshot of uh, uh, my involvement. Fascinating. Th thank you. I, you know, your global engagement, your leadership over such a long period of time, I think perhaps can give us a pretty unique perspective on where we are today in, in the pursuit of justice and human rights. A time when, when frankly, it seems fewer global leaders seem to be taking a human rights approach uh, to foreign policy, and a time when the U.S. has to a great degree withdrawn from the role of the world's policemen. Um, and according to the Economist Intelligence Unit Index, about 70% of the world's countries including many democracies saw a reduction in political freedoms last year. And in addition, while perhaps under half of the world's population was living under autocratic rule a decade ago, that number today is 68%. Um, in a recent speech, um, public speech, David Miliband, the former British Foreign Secretary and now CEO of the International Rescue Committee, offered a sobering warning about human rights and democracy in what he called the emerging quote unquote age of impunity in which authoritarian governments and even democracies are increasingly flouting the law, the rule of law, 
for example, the attempted assassination and then arrest of Alexei Navalny in Russia and recent barring of his party, the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul by Saudi Arabia comes to mind. In Miliband's view, the next decade will be a race or a fight between accountability and impunity. Do you agree with this premise that liberal democracies and human rights are on the retreat and that we're seeing authoritarian governments be more brazen in their pursuit of dissidents and in stifling justice? And if so, why, why has that been happening? Well, I, I think at this point, we're actually experiencing uh, four pandemics at the same time. I would call the first the COVID-19 uh, pandemic with all the uh, suffering and tragedy and death that that has uh, engaged. The second is what I would call the uh, pandemic of, of racism, uh, including also the global escalating anti-Semitism. The third is the one uh, that you were just referring to, uh, which I referred to as the uh, global uh, political pandemic. Uh, by that, I'm referring to the resurgent global authoritarianism, the backsliding of democracies, the assault on human rights, and political prisoners as a looking glass into that global political pandemic. The whole, as Miliband mentioned, underpinned by a culture of impunity. But having said that, I have to say that I'm also inspired uh, with those that I've been involved in. I see protests and peaceful movements many of them led by women in different parts of the world. If you look at what is happening in Belarus, so you look at what's happening in uh, uh, Sudan, if you look at the women's movement uh, in uh, Iran and, and Venezuela. So uh, what we're seeing as well are heroic uh, initiatives by people who are prepared uh, not only to put their lives, but to put their lives on the line. So I think we've got here competing uh, dynamics and I'm hoping uh, that those who are leading the human rights movements will be those who will be prevailing if the democracies, the community of democracies, begin to underpin their uh, heroism. And I'm delighted to see that, you know, President Biden has made uh, human rights and the pursuit and promotion of democracy priorities for his uh, foreign policy, that this recently characterized the outcome document of the G7 meeting and the like. So it's up to us uh, to move uh, the dial in the right direction. So just to, just to put, a, put a bit of a point on that, uh, is your sense that we're seeing the appropriate response coming from liberal democracies? And indeed, you know, one of the questions is who should lead that? Is, is the US, the world's traditional policeman, the right, organ, you know, the right country, if you will, to take and, and drive that? Or is it realistic that other countries, Canada, for example, or the UN could take the lead? And similarly, what, what's the role of civil society, including organizations such as your Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights or corporations, and in particular, the global social media companies? Where, where do they fit into, into this, uh, this situation? Well, I, I do think that it's important to have uh, concerted action by the community of, of democracies. I don't think uh, one country can do this alone. I think part of the problem is that uh, for the last number of years, we did not have a concerted democracy working uh, together. So we do need to have the, the community of democracies working in concert, engaged in multilateral uh, diplomacy, agreeing on common cause and the common uh, pursuit of justice. You know, just on one issue alone, on the matter of media freedom, Freedom House reported that if the backsliding of democracies were to continue and the authoritarianism uh, were to be intensified, we might see the extinction, as they put it, of uh, media freedom in the next few years. And so uh, while I regard that as a, a pessimistic approach, but on the other hand, it was a warning. And so I think what we need is uh, the banding together of the community of democracies, but we need civil society engagement. Um, it can't just be a government 
and parliaments. It needs to be civil society. And you mentioned the social media. There we need much more uh, accountability and responsibility uh, by the uh, social media, because what we are seeing is the uh, weaponization of the social media uh, that has been, in fact, undermining uh, that kind of uh, cohesion and that kind of uh, integration. So when you mentioned our Raoul Wallenberg Center uh, for Human Rights, yes, we are engaged both domestically and internationally. And I think the fact that we are named after Raoul Wallenberg uh, tells us also uh, the power of what one person with the compassion to care and the courage to act can confront evil, prevail and transform history. So not everyone maybe can be what Raoul Wallenberg, but everyone can do something every day to better the human condition. I always remember uh, the teaching of Rambam, Maimonides, again, taught to me by my parents, who said, you know, we should each see the world as divided into half evil and half good. Therefore, one good deed by any one of us on any given day can have a transformative cosmic effect. So we should each see that we have a role, a responsibility, and we can have an impact. Well, you've certainly been a uh, an incredible example of that over many many years. So wonderful to see to see that, and it sounds like you are you are bullish that uh, that 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 that, uh, that can continue in that direction. I'm an eternal optimist, there. <laughs> okay, all right, good 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 to hear and good to know. Um, let 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 me shift gears and talk uh, a bit about anti-Semitism. Um, as Michael mentioned, you were named by the Canadian government as the special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. And during the global pandemic, uh, anti-Semitic acts by a number of measures have increased. But in the aftermath of Israel's recent war with Hamas in Gaza, we've of course seen a dramatic rise in anti-Semitic discourse and anti-Semitic incidents, both from the far right, but also from the far left, in addition to anti-Semitic acts from Islamists. And we've seen that recently in, in, in the streets of London, in New York, in West Hollywood, and various comments from politicians and social commentators. Please give us your perspective um, on the state of anti-Semitism today, 76 years after the end of the Holocaust. Why is it surging again? And why has it seemingly become culturally acceptable and even mainstream to be openly anti-Semitic? Are we seeing anti-Semitism raising its ugly head under the guise of anti-Zionism? Well, I, I think it's a, a, a combination of, of factors. Um, we have been witnessing what I would call an, uh, a growing, uh, escalating, uh, virulent, uh, sophisticated, and even uh, lethal uh, old new anti-Semitism for some 20 years now. It is that it reached a tipping point uh, with the recent uh, Hamas war uh, targeting Israel. And I think there have been a number of factors which have uh, led into this as well. Uh, one of the main things is that anti-Semitism, regrettably, has become increasingly mainstreamed, normalized, legitimate, legitimated in the uh, political culture. And even with respect to the recent events, uh, which have been a tipping point, as I say, in this global uh, anti-Semitism, let us not forget that anti-Semitism is the oldest uh, most enduring uh, and most toxic of hatreds and toxic to the democracies uh, in which they anchor themselves. But one of the things that has disturbed me most has been the manner in which it has become mainstreamed, normalized and legitimated with an absence of outrage. And so the most important thing is that we need here too political leadership. Uh, we've had too much of indifference, 
inaction and even silence. We need political leadership, not only to call out and condemn these actions, but in fact, uh, to develop national action plans in Canada and elsewhere uh, to combat it. Uh, you mentioned the social media. Uh, we have witnessed, uh, for example, uh, for the last five years, uh, Jews have been the most targeted of religious minorities. The year 2020 was the highest ever in Canada. But in tw May 2021, we've reached a total that exceeded all the uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes in all of uh, 2020. And we've re also witnessed an explosion of anti-Semitic hate and incitement on the social media, which, which is included also, you know, Holocaust uh, distortion and denial and the like. The very fact that you could have in one week uh, that Hitler was right, or a variation of that, tweeted 17,000 times. And I'm just giving you just one example of the kind of incitement uh, that metastasized uh, in the social media. So I think we need also uh, to combat incitement in the social media. And we are going to, with respect to anti-Semitic hate crimes, deal with preventing them as well as enforcing them. And here too, a comprehensive uh, legal strategy uh, for that uh, purpose. So uh, to sum it up, we need a national action plan. I'm glad that the Canadian government is now convening a national emergency summit, but it can't just be another uh, conversation or seminar. It has to be a national action summit. It has to produce an action plan and it has to implement uh, that uh, plan. And that's why I've said that for purposes of this uh, action summit being effective, we need to have, for example, the responsible ministers present, the minister of justice, the minister of public uh, security, the minister of uh, Canadian heritage, the minister of foreign affairs, along with the prime minister. We need civil society leaders and the leadership of the Jewish committee in its uh, very uh, representative sense. We need young people because where this anti-Semitism is finding expression is in academe and where you increasingly find Jewish students uh, who feel uh, targeted, uh, silenced, marginalized, excluded, which leads me to the final point here. And that is uh, one of the main issues we have are the phenomenon of intersectionality where we are divided into oppressors and oppressed and uh, the Jews are seen as part of the oppressor class increasingly as part of almost at times the white oppressor class even though Jews are not uh, white in that sense uh, and so they're in a pincer movement they're seen by many on the progressive left as being part of uh, the white oppressor movement and they're seen by uh, white oppressors as being those who are mobilizing the left, immigration, et cetera, and minorities. So that is the problem that we are faced with is that at times Jews are not even seen as having standing to enter the conversation with regard uh, to combating uh, racism because they're seen as being part of the problem uh, rather than being part of the solution. Anti-Semitism is not seen as part of systematic racism in our uh, culture. When in fact, as I say, Jews are the most targeted of minority. So there's a whole a series of issues here, but in the main, it has to be a national action, implementative policy and plan. Yeah.
Well, let me let me probe a little bit on that, on whether that in and of itself is enough. I think as part of your role as special envoy, you've also been the Canadian representative to the IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which uh, I believe in 2016 or so developed a working definition of anti-Semitism, um, an important tool for police, for prosecutors, for judges, for monitors, for data collectors to at least quantify the problem, if you will. And this uh, IRA working definition has now been formally adopted by, I think, roughly 30, 30 countries um, around the world, um, which is remarkable. Um, and in addition, a number of countries have taken this more comprehensive approach that you're describing, a national action plan to address security, education, the judicial process, appointed national commissioners or national coordinators uh, to fight anti-Semitism. Is that is that a significant step forward, and is that the right set of tools and model for fighting anti-Semitism, or is it still just paying lip service and fundamentally not addressing the root causes and increased mainstreaming of anti-Semitism itself? What what else needs to be done, or is that in your mind time will time will will address that if that's the approach? No, it's uh, the the IRA working definition on anti-Semitism is an important uh, development. Um, it is not only the most authoritative, uh, comprehensive, and international uh, definition that we have, but what is sometimes ignored is the most representative. By that I mean uh, it was adopted um, over a democratic decision-making process of 15 years, and I must say that I was uh, involved in it from its inception in, in 2000 until the adoption in 2016, and it involved intergovernmental bodies, the governments, uh, parliaments, uh, academics, uh, I would say part, civil society leaders and the like. So it is a very, very uh, democratically uh, adopted definition. And it, the whole thing about it is that it is useful, as you put it, as a resource, uh, a resource, whether it be in the educational arena, in the law enforcement arena, in the media uh, arena, in the parliamentary arena and, and the like. And uh, we also have adopted some important parliamentary antecedents that are not as well known as they uh, deserve to be. I'm referring to the London Declaration to Combat Anti-Semitism adopted in 2009 at a UK international uh, parliamentary conference, successor one in 2010, and a resolution unanimously adopted by the Canadian Parliament, February 2015, which is not as well known as it deserves to be. And I'll very quickly summarize it because it contains within it itself an action plan. It begins by saying, uh, alarmed at the growing esca global escalation of anti-Semitism. That was six years ago. Then it says, calls upon the Canadian government to make the combating of anti-Semitism a priority in both our domestic and foreign policy. Now, this was unanimously adopted at the time. And then the third component says, criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic and saying so is wrong but singling Israel out for selective opprobrium and indictment, denying Israel's right to exist, let alone calling for its destruction, is hateful, discriminatory, and anti-Semitic, and not saying so is dishonest. This is now a matter of public record, and we should use this as principle and precedent with respect to our national action plan. Well, maybe that's maybe that's a good springboard to talk a bit about Israel and uh, and and the Middle East. Let me let me shift us uh, into that and and talk first about the regional situation, and um, and perhaps the most significant regional development over the past year have been uh, arguably the the Abraham Accords, the uh, the normalization of relations between Israel and the Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, 
And certainly one of the factors that led to the Abraham Accords was the shared threat um, and perceived threat from Iran. So where are we with Iran today? The, um, if I can try to summarize and, uh, and, and then turn, turn that over to you to give your perspectives, because you've been involved, I think, with Iran for a long time. The P5 plus one with the Biden administration in the lead is negotiating the reinstatement of the 2015 JCPOA dealing only with Iran's nuclear program. Israel and perhaps more quietly a number of the Gulf countries have forcefully argued against re-entering this 2015 agreement and that the biting US economic sanctions should instead be leveraged to negotiate a longer and a stronger agreement, but also one that addresses some of Iran's other malign behavior, development of ballistic missiles, destabilizing behavior across the region directly and through proxies in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Gaza, as well as human rights violations. And while the negotiations in Vienna continue, Israel, of course, has not just been standing by idly, but rather continues to very actively, and it seems quite effectively, act on the ground to set back Iran's nuclear program, target its leadership, as outgoing Mossad head Yossi Cohen recently uh, detailed, in addition to, of course, targeted airstrikes against Iranian forces and proxies in Syria. You've been directly engaged with vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran for a number of years. I believe you also were part of a group of international jurists that indicted uh, Iranian President Ahmadinejad for incitement to genocide. What's your view on the current situation vis-a-vis -vis Iran? What do you see as the appropriate realistic path forward to contain the Iranian threat? The well, broad, broad all, question. Yeah, no, no, but a, a, an important question because I, I think when you put it in terms of the broad threat, we have not yet appreciated that we are witnessing and have been uh, engaged with what I would call a five-fold uh, Iranian uh, threat. And this has been for some time now. There's the nuclear threat. There is the ballistic missile threat. There is the uh, hegemonic uh, threat, which is both regional and international in terms of ties and links with regard, for example, uh, Latin America. Uh, and there is uh, the, the terrorist threat, where Iran is a leading state sponsor of terrorism. And some things that we don't something we don't pay enough attention to, but is particularly important to the Iranian people, and that is the massive domestic repression. That's why I always use the term Khamenei's Iran uh, to <coughs> refer uh, to the nature of the Iranian regime and, uh, and distinguish it from the people and publics of Iran, courageous people and public, who are the targets of mass domestic repression. And when you mention uh, with regard to uh, incitement, you know, we wanted to indict Ahmadinejad at the time, uh, and even Khamenei, because some people don't uh, remember perhaps that the 21st century began on January 4, 2000, with uh, Khamenei saying there can be no resolution to the Arab-Israeli conflict without the annihilation of the Jewish state. He didn't even use the euphemism, the Zionist regime. Now that is a standing violation of the Genocide Convention, because the Genocide Convention prohibits not only acts of genocide, it prohibits incitement at the genocide. Therefore, uh, preventing and, and punishing it is not only a policy option, it's an international legal obligation of the first order. Yet we have yet to hold the Iranian leadership accountable for that standing incitement to genocide. So I think what we need to do is see it in its fivefold threat and with its five uh, fold threat, we will have the comprehensive picture and we should never ignore the massive domestic uh, repression and the incitement when we speak about that fivefold threat. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Let, let's 
talk uh, shift more into into Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Um, I, I wanted to um, talk a bit about the recent war with Hamas, the the, the four thousand rockets, as we all know and we all witnessed um, the Le the Iron Dome uh, that we all witnessed uh, miraculously defending Israeli cities. Um, and the IDF responding uh, very, very forcefully um, against Hamas targets in Gaza. But of course, those targets are often embedded, as we know, within the civilian population. And so consequently, consequently the civilian casualties were, were higher in Gaza. And while many of the leaders of Israel's friends, the, 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 the leadership um, in the West publicly and strongly supported Israel's right to self-defense, international public opinion and international bodies strongly demonized Israel. The, hum the UN Human Rights Council, certainly no friend of Israel, um, recently resolved to establish a commission of inquiry to investigate, quote unquote, all alleged violations of international humanitarian law and all underlying root causes of recurring tensions, instability in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem and in Israel. But of greater potential concern is the intention of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, to conduct an investigation with respect to, quote unquote, the situation in Palestine its enforcement powers. How, how do you view the proposed ICC investigation, also the UN Human Rights Council uh, one? Is the ICC an appropriate form for investigating what is essentially a political issue? And as I understand it, the ICC is a treaty of a body of states, and Palestine, by most any definition, is not a state, doesn't satisfy the traditional criteria of statehood, of control of, te of territory, permanent population, or an effective government. Is this just politics in play yet again against Israel? Well, first, let me just say and begin that I'm a longtime uh, supporter um, of an international uh, criminal court. Uh, in fact, as a member of parliament, uh, I was at the Rome uh, Treaty 1998 uh, founding. Uh, as a member of parliament, one of my first initiatives was the uh, tabling uh, of legislation to domesticate the international uh, criminal court and give Canada universal jurisdiction with regard to war crimes and crimes against humanity. In 2002, I hosted the first ever parliamentary consultative assembly for an international criminal court. Fast forward, and this gets me to the direct question, and I hope to be able to answer it in this way. In 2017, I became a member of what was called the Organization of American States Independent Legal Panel to look into whether there are reasonable grounds to believe that crimes against humanity were being committed in Venezuela. Uh, we entered into a very sustained, in-depth inquiry, and in May 2018, just a little over three years ago, uh, we determined that seven major crimes against humanity were being committed in Venezuela. That was followed by the first ever collective referral by seven democracies, seven sovereign states of Venezuela, a state party to the International Criminal Court, to the ICC for prospective investigation and jurisdiction. As we meet to date, the special prosecutor, who just now uh, terminated uh, her tenure, uh, did not open an investigation against Venezuela, even though Venezuela is a state party to the International Criminal Court, even though there was a collective referral to the International Criminal Court, as I mentioned, and even though that last December 2020, Jared Genzer, the uh, first ever special uh, advisor on the responsibility to protect to the Organization of American States in his own independent report determined that the crimes against humanity had intensified and criticized the special uh, prosecutor for not and for in fact 
incentivizing impunity in Venezuela. Now contrast this with regard to the situation in, in Palestine, as it's called, where uh, the court took jurisdiction, even though number one, Israel is not a member of the ICC, even though the Palestinian Authority is not yet a state, even though many of us have been longtime supporters of two states for two peoples, but as a matter of law, it is not yet a state. And even though the Oslo Accords gave criminal jurisdiction, not to the Palestinian Authority, but to Israel over Area C and so on. So what you have here is the application clearly of double standards, which in my view, undermine uh, the integrity of the court and let alone the other issues that I've not gone into, such as complementarity. That is to say that if a country has an independent uh, judiciary, then that's supposed to be uh, the first uh, resort because the ICC was intended to be a court of last resort, not a court of first resort. So I was one of the intervenants uh, before the uh, court uh, in the situation in Palestine, put all these arguments before it, um, Regrettably, as I say, the special prosecutor did go ahead, and I'm hoping that perhaps uh, now with the advent of a new prosecutor who's committed to an independent, impartial ICC, because that is what we need, a court with integrity, that the proper decision-making will take place. Let's, let's hope that uh, that is the case, that uh, time will tell here. Thank you for that. Let's shift gears and, and as a final topic before opening it up to our audience, so please get ready with, uh, with your questions. Uh, let's touch on some of Israel's domestic challenges. I, I know you spend much time in Israel. I know you have family in Israel. And Israel, as we all know, is a very vibrant democracy. We've certainly seen all that democracy in full action over the last two years as Israelis have gone to the polls four times while having a prime minister under indictment and earlier this week formed a, a change government uh, from across the political spectrum. And while Iran and the Israeli-Palestinian situation is of utmost concern for the international community, for most Israelis, the main priorities, according to the polls, revolve around socioeconomic issues, around security, and around corruption, including strong feelings on all sides vis-a-vis -vis former Prime Minister Netanyahu. And while the Israeli economy has been strong overall over the last set of years, aside from 2020, um, driven by the Israel we all know as the startup nation or the innovation nation, Israel, in fact, has one of the highest poverty and income inequality rates in the OECD, including a high share of marginalized and economically disadvantaged groups with limited higher education, including the Haredim, Israeli Arabs, Ethiopians, Druze, Bedouins, troubled youth, handicapped individuals, etc. And these groups today are by and large not part of Israel's innovation ecosystem. And given their high birth rates, several of these populations are also among the fastest growing in Israel, and over the coming decades will comprise the majority of Israel's population. We all understand that Israel's global competitiveness as the startup nation or the innovation nation has relied on a continuing stream of highly educated and skilled human capital, not much natural resource in Israel. But given Israel's highly disparate demographic and economic makeup, how do you view the medium to long-term challenges for Israeli society and economy? And what role do you see higher education potentially playing in addressing the social inequality and providing upward mobility, but also providing the critical human skills uh, and the capital, the human capital needed to sustain the innovation nation. Well, I, I think uh, you know education is a crucial objective priority. It has to be a priority uh, as a matter of Israel's overall uh, policy and, and, and planning. I think the open university has been playing a critical 
role and making an important uh, contribution in its inclusive approach uh, to education. And uh, the title really reflects what it is. It is an open uh, university. And I'm hoping that the government now that has come into power, this is the most uh, representative uh, and inclusive, if I can use a Canadian term, a government that Israel has ever had from a political point of view. You've got representation from the center, the left, and the right. Uh, you've got balance with regard to religious and secular. You have nine women uh, who are members of the government, the highest number of women ever that have been part of an Israeli uh, government. Uh, you, you have the first ever uh, Islamic Arab uh, party that is part of the government. You have other uh, Arab ministers who are part of the government as, as well. Um, you have therefore a, an inclusive uh, representative government that has said it is going to make the issue of domestic uh, policy and planning a priority. And I think you're gonna find a priority placed with regard to education, with regard to health, with regard to uh, inequality, because that is something, uh, you know, Israel has some of the lowest levels in the OECD, et cetera, both in the inequality and in terms of uh, marginal but growing def demographic groups. So I think the fact that this government has agreed uh, to make this a, a priority and because they can more agree on the domestic part than they might be able to agree on the foreign policy part means that this will emerge, I hope, as a priority as a matter of principle and policy. Good, thank you for that. I hope you are right. It's a razor thin margin that they are uh, a majority by at the moment, but uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's clearly a direction that they are pushing towards. I think this is a good time to shift uh, a, a bit to our audience questions. Michael, can uh, Michael, you're gonna you're gonna orchestrate that. So please uh, take it from here. I'll do my best. Uh, in some cases, there's some overlap, so I'll try and paraphrase where I can in order to get the most uh, out of these questions. The uh, first one I have is from um, Andrea Spindel, and uh, supported by Goldie Steiner. Uh, what is the mandate for the upcoming summit on anti-Semitism? Who will be participating? What are your expectations uh, on outcome and implementation? And uh, will you be also appearing at the Mimic Islamophobia Summit? And can you outline the similarities and differences between these two forms of racism? Okay, the, f first of all, there are two uh, separate summits being planned. There is a, uh, a summit uh, with regard to uh, Islamophobia, which was triggered by uh, the recent uh, murder of the family in, in London. And there's the uh, summit uh, with respect to anti-Semitism, which um, had been discussed and now is going to come into being. The particulars of it have not exactly uh, been worked out thus far. Uh, I would like to see it, you know, be in, in that sense, an inclusive uh, summit, but one that is manageable uh, in an operational sense uh, so that it can come uh, to what, as I said, the development and acting upon an action plan. So I think you'll have representation uh, from Jewish organizations. I think we need to have representation from uh, young people. I think the, you mentioned IRA. I think the Canadian delegation to IRA brings a, a repository of expertise. Uh, I think we need uh, to have uh, leaders from the different uh, religious denominations. In other words, it should be an inclusive 
uh, representative and effective uh, participation, though it can't be so large, this is not a, you know, a, a Congress, this is an action-oriented uh, summit. And, and therefore, uh, at the end of the day, the numbers will have to reflect the ability to make decisions uh, and act upon them. So what I am saying is that I would invite those who ask the questions, who, whom I know, Andrea and Goldie and others, to uh, send us, when I say us, I'm, I'm laughing, you'll see why. I happen to have five mandates uh, as special envoy. Uh, they include uh, preserving Holocaust remembrance domestically and internationally, combating anti-Semitism domestically and internationally, and heading the Canadian delegation to IRA. But as yet, I, to receive either a budget or any staff. So the Rao Wallenberg Center has been helping me out uh, pro bono thus far, and I've just gotten my first assigned, uh, first staff person. I say this because my counterparts in other countries who have these uh, responsibilities uh, each have five or six people assisting them for each of the responsibilities that I mentioned. Uh, that's only by way of saying that those of you who've got recommendations, please send them to me. I, I can't say that I will be able to respond to everyone at the limited resources that I now have, but we'll take all this into account because we want to make this a very you know, strategic action summit. Thank you very much. Um, this from a uh, combination of Leo Adler and Robert Friedman uh, discussing, maybe you could discuss Jewish anti-Zionism and BDS support, meaning from Jews. Well, you know, I didn't get the last part of what you said, Michael. I saw, I heard you say about BDS. Yeah, well, we have a rise in Jewish anti-Zionism right. um, and BDS uh, now. And uh, what, what do you, how do you comment on uh, how that phenomenon is taking root and what to do about it? Well, you know, uh, we have forgotten uh, the Durban conference of uh, September 2001. I was at Durban and the launching of what I would say is of both the BDS movement and uh, the uh, Israel apartheid slander grew out of that hate fest in Durban uh, that I was a part of. And as there was a response to that hate fest, that in the Stockholm conference in 2002, the Stockholm conference of 2000 launched the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And then in 2002, the momentum developed uh, that took us down the path uh, to adopting the IRA working definition on anti-Semitism. But we saw that uh, hate festival up close and regrettably, you know, there were those amongst them, uh, not only, as I say, BDS was launched then, but there were, you know, some amongst them who are Jews as well. And we still see this phenomenon today, but that's a phenomenon of, of, of Jewish history. In, in one sense, it's a reflection of, of uh, <clears throat> the manner in which our community is so pluralistic that it ends up having uh, people uh, who uh, end up being part of those movements. But I think the main thing is that we have to realize that there have been five phenomenon that uh, uh, five metrics of the new anti-Semitism, and I'll do very quickly in one-liners, and I apologize for doing it so quickly. Uh, the five metrics are what I would call number one, genocidal anti-Semitism. These are not terms I use lightly or easily, but I'm referring to the advocacy, the most horrific of crimes, namely genocide, 
embedded in the most virulent of hatreds, namely anti-Semitism, uh, that is also underpinning uh, you know, the uh, incendiary anti-Semitism that we're seeing today, not only from governments, but in the streets and the demonstrations. The second is what I would call demonological anti-Semitism. In other words, this is the contemporary analog to uh, the Jew as uh, the poisoner of the wells or the Jews as the enemy of all that is good and the repository of all that is evil. That's what we hear now and see now today with regard to Israel and the Jewish people, that they are the enemy of all that is good, the repository of all that is evil. And so you have the refrain referring uh, to Israel as being a racist, imperialist, uh, colonialist, uh, ethnic uh, cleansing, uh, child murdering apartheid, if not Nazi state. The whole demonological anti-Semitism, and as I said, the fact that some of this can get normalized and mainstream uh, is really what is so outrageous. The third is what I call political anti-Semitism, which is uh, the denial of Israel's uh, right to exist, if not also its legitimacy, the denial of the Jewish right to self-determination, the denial even that the Jews uh, are a people. Uh, the fourth is what I call terrorist anti-Semitism, that is uh, the targeting of Jews within Israel and without, you know, uh, uh, targeting terrorist acts and the like. And the fifth, and we sometimes forget this, is what I would call the laundering or masking of anti-Semitism under universal uh, public values. In other words, and here I sum it up again rather crudely, under the protective cover of the UN, under the authority of international law, under the culture of human rights, under the struggle against uh, racism itself. And that's where the previous references that Aaron mentioned to the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Commission, etc., falls into that uh, delegitimization in the international arena. Thank you very much. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned the Durban Conference. I, we have a couple of questions uh, concerning Zionism is apartheid, Bruce Leboff, David Brody. And um, David Brody also raised a question about what were Nelson Mandela's views on Zionism versus the Palestinian cause. So the one is Zionism as apartheid, and the other is what did Nelson Mandela feel about our enterprise? Okay, uh, let's take the first. Uh, the worst thing you can do in the world in which we live, and this has been true for some time, is to call somebody a racist. The very label supplies the indictment. Almost no further proof uh, is involved. And if you have it uh, uh, to a country, uh, this provides its own uh, demonization, as we saw with the Zionism as racist resolution. But we've gone beyond that uh, to the apartheid uh, label. Now, let, let's understand that apartheid is defined in international uh, criminal law as a crime against humanity. Therefore, if you say Israel is an apartheid state, then you're saying it's a crime against humanity. If it's a crime against humanity, then it has, in effect, no right to be. It must be uh, dismantled. And if that is not enough, you say that it's also a Nazi state. So not only uh, does it have no right to be, but in turning international law and human rights on its head, we have an obligation uh, to dismantle. And the final part about this is somebody who was involved myself in the apartheid movement for 30 years. I was arrested in South Africa for my involvement in the uh, anti-apartheid uh, movement. Uh, it's really demeaning uh, to say that Israel is apartheid because it undermines the real struggle against the real apartheid. If you say that Israel is apartheid like South Africa, that means South Africa was like Israel. That means apartheid South Africa had an independent judiciary, had a free press, had a democratic elected uh, legislature and NGOs all over the place, you know, uh, criticize. And of course, uh, it, it is exactly the opposite. Now with regard to uh, Mandela, I can say two things uh, about Mandela. Um, and 
uh, we even discussed this issue. Uh, yes, he was critical of Israel's uh, treatment of the uh, Palestinians, but he also said that Israel has a right to live in peace and uh, security. And he himself never used the apartheid label. I might add, because some don't know this, that uh, Mandela received an honorary degree from Ben-Gurion University. He would not have taken an honorary degree from a university that he felt was uh, coming from an apartheid state. So I think that uh, Mandela had a very close relationship uh, with Jews in South Africa, many of whom uh, were part of the uh, anti-apartheid movement and his relationship with Israel while he was critical of issues relating to human rights violations never ventured into the notion of apartheid. Very good, thank you. Uh, who are, where and who are the biggest and most effective voices in the true human rights movement today? I, I, I guess part of that is when you see Human Rights Watch and UNICEF and ICC, Amnesty International, Oxfam, and those supposed human rights organizations, but they really don't seem to be treating our causes all that well. Who is Who, who are the real players nowadays that actually stand for human rights? Well, you, you know, you mentioned uh, organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, they are considered amongst some of the, uh, you know, preeminent uh, human rights NGOs today. Regrettably, uh, some of the NGO movement, beginning also in Durban, and they were part of uh, that festival of hate at, at Durban. So while they may be doing good work on many issues, and in fact, I've worked with them on a number of issues, when it comes uh, to Israel, regrettably, they have been part of the process of singling out of Israel uh, for selective opprobrium and indictment. But let's not forget that there are very uh, other good organizations that are working uh, with respect to uh, human rights. Uh, I mentioned our own uh, Rao Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and we work together with a variety of organizations that are doing excellent work, uh, which, for example, uh, the Parliamentarians uh, for Global Action which is the largest global uh, parliamentary organization, very much engaged on the ground in the trenches for human rights. Um, I mentioned our high level uh, panel of uh, legal experts for media freedom doing excellent work with regard to the protection of uh, media freedom and other organizations in, in that regard. So, and uh, there are some very good organizations, student organizations that are doing uh, excellent work. And I think they need our support and they are increasingly engaged in uh, human rights issues. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some other organizations that have come up, um, among them Shurat Adin in Israel, um, the NGO Monitor also in Israel, uh, Wallenberg Center, the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism in, uh, in England, uh, offer a project. Uh, but the malaise still, still seems to grow. Uh, it's almost as if no matter what we do, it, the wall just keeps getting higher and can't hop over it. Well, the main thing is, is not uh, to get discouraged. Uh, the main thing is, uh, in fact, for each of us, as I say, to do whatever we can do to get engaged individually, uh, collectively, uh, seek out uh, partner organizations. I'll just give you one example, if I may, on this. You know, if I'm ever invited by a Jewish group uh, to, to address them on the campuses, I tell them I won't come unless 
the meeting you're inviting me to is also co-sponsored by uh, the women's group, uh, by the uh, blacks of people of, of color, <clears throat> by LGBT. In other words, Jews and Jewish students have to be involved in the larger struggle for human rights in our time. You know, it's interesting when it came to the struggle for Soviet Jewry, we patented uh, intersectionality. If we think about it, we had at the time students for Soviet Jewry, women for Soviet Jewry, scientists for Soviet Jewry, artists uh, for, for Soviet Jewry, lawyers uh, for Soviet Jewry, parliamentarians. For, we had a critical mass of attitude. And if you look at political prisoners at the time, the political prisoners were the people like Anatoly Sharansky, Eden Nodel, Yosef Begun. Today, we're not involved with the political prisoners of our times. And we have a, a, a heroic woman like Nasreen Sutada in Iran, who's gone down the line in Iran uh, for the women's movement, for the religiously persecuted Baha'i, for journalists uh, who are silenced, uh, and so on. We need to be in support of these heroic individuals in the different countries, as I said, who are leading protest movements, because they are pointing in the direction of what might become the governments of tomorrow in those countries, and we should be with them now by their side, supporting them, whether it's human rights people in Venezuela or in Saudi Arabia or in uh, Iran, etc. Thank you. Uh, Paula Kleiman, Vita Caro, uh, asked about what you can do on campuses, uh, both from faculty, uh, fellow students, and in fact, senior administration constantly fails to address it. Uh, I, I'm in Toronto. The University of Toronto is a classic example recently of how that goes. They just seem to dodge. Uh, how do you view this and what can we do? Well, number one, I think that the universities should do what universities in England are doing, and that is adopt the IRA working definition on anti-Semitism and let that be a, a resource, a tool, a, a framework, a guide. Uh, many of these universities uh, who have, you know, equity uh, officers and uh, codes of conduct and the like, somehow uh, have not managed to be able to include anti-Semitism when they speak about uh, oppressive, uh, oppression or when they speak about systematic uh, racism. So uh, anti-Semitism is sanitized. And as I say, uh, even worse, sometimes anti-Semitism is seen as being part of the oppressor class. So administrations have to, in fact, uh, make the issue of combating anti-Semitism. And as I say this as somebody who's involved, yes, we do have to combat systemic racism. Systemic racism against indigenous people, against blacks and people of color, against Asian Canadians, against Muslims. But we cannot leave anti-Semitism out of the equation since it's the oldest, most enduring, most toxic, most lethal uh, of hatreds. I think academics have to speak up. One of the things that worries me is I get a sense that academics themselves uh, feel silenced and, and marginalized and has become almost politically correct, incorrect to speak up on behalf uh, of, of Israel. So I think it's important for people uh, to realize that when they speak about uh, the state of Israel, they are speaking, of, and the Jewish people, they are speaking about number one, an indigenous people, a people that still <clears throat> embraces the same religion, inhabits the same land, observes the same uh, traditions, speaks the same indigenous language Hebrew and bears the same indigenous name Israel as we did 3,500 years ago. So we are a prototypical indigenous people. I'm not saying that the Arabs are not indigenous people. I'm saying that the Jews are 
prototypical indigenous people, and we are a prototypical anti-colonialist people, a people that were dispossessed from their indigenous land, displaced, persecuted, target of pogroms, and that like the Holocaust was only the culmination of, of uh, such persecution. And in effect, we are also a prototypical anti-colonialist movement. And therefore we should hold ourselves out in both senses of the word as an indigenous people, an indigenous movement that is also anti-colonialist and we have not made that case and that cause. Well, maybe that's uh, a very good spot uh, on which to wrap. We're getting to the top of the hour here. Um, thank you, Michael. And a special thank you to you, Erwin, for that really fascinating discussion, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be with us this evening, this, this night. Um, maybe a word on the Open University. As I, as I mentioned at the start, um, it is the largest of the nine accredited universities in Israel. It educates over 49,000 students on its state-of-the-art online higher education learning platform, as well as its 70 physical campuses spread all across Israel. And the Open University's core values are based on academic excellence and open admissions policy, social justice, and the inclusion of all citizens of Israel. Not only does the Open University include the most diverse student body, Haredim, Arab Israelis, Ethiopians, Druze, underprivileged students, the handicapped, but really provides a path towards upward mobility for tens of thousands, as well as educates active duty IDF soldiers at campuses located at top IDF intelligence bases, and also has a program for Israel's best and brightest high school students who want to enter academia at an early age. I wanna thank you, our audience, for joining us tonight, for showing your commitment to Israel and the topics we discussed tonight. And if you enjoyed this program, please be on the lookout for additional virtual salons that we will be hosting. And hopefully as the vaccines continue to roll out, not only in Israel, but uh, elsewhere, Canada in particular, um, at some point we will be gathering in person in, in uh, later this year. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about the Open University, visit our website, afui.org, or find us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Thank you all and have a very good evening. Dear listeners, we invite you to support our life-changing mission to further the goals of the Open University of Israel, a pioneer and cutting-edge leader in distance learning, dedicated to educating all those who would otherwise be denied a university education. Please find the donate link inside the episode description. Thank you.